You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Emswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to be joined by Father Richard Murphy, retired rector at St. Bede's Episcopal Church, where he served for 14 years, and who is presently serving as assisting priest at Church of the Holy Faith here in Santa Fe. And also during the New Mexico legislative session, Father Richard also serves as state Senate chaplain. Father Richard, welcome. Thank you, Rabbi Neil. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Of course, it's great having you. So you've been a member of clergy for over 30 years now. Um, so let's start by asking, what made you want to be a faith leader in the first place? When I uh, when I think of that, I go back to when I was six years old, running around in the schoolyard of St. Peter's Catholic School in New Haven, Connecticut, with a towel on my back, trying to imitate the priest who I saw in church wow. on Sundays. And I I guess there was some sort of a call that began at that age because uh, both the priests and the nuns uh, became central parts of my life. And. So is that an imitation? What, what was it that was so positive for them that helped you think, I want to do that too? I think uh, more than anything else, it was their goodness. It was their support. Um, I grew up in a single-parent home just with my mother and my sister. And uh, the, parent, the uh, priests and the nuns oftentimes acted as surrogate parents. And the church was a central part. It was in the 50s. And the church had a much more central place in the life of the community than it does today. And you depended on them a lot more, and you admired them. I just admired them, and I said, gee, this is what I want to be. Wow. <laughs> and so 30 years on, is that the same thing that keeps you wanting to be a member of clergy? You know, I have not looked back and regretted. I had a career before uh, ministry for 14 years, which really ages me, uh, as a probation officer, and then right. went into seminary and um, became a parish in parish ministry 30 years ago. Um, and I've never looked back. I've never regretted the move at all. But what does it mean for you to be clergy now? I mean, you were saying that what inspired you before was their goodness and their support. Mm. Is it that or is it something else? How how has that developed for you? It's developed for me in a lot of ways. And I think centrally at the heart of the Episcopal Church, there is our baptismal covenant, uh, which covers a broad range of areas of seeking and serving Christ and all others and carrying on the work of the apostles. Um, and it's being a part of that process. I see my priesthood as a uh, response to God of following my baptismal covenant, and this is how I feel that God has called me to, to live out my life as, as, a, as a minister, as a priest. So. The idea of God calling is very interesting. Some clergy really profoundly feel a divine call, a sort of a call from outside or a call from within, and others say just seem like absolutely the right thing to do. Since you mentioned the idea of a calling, what what was that calling for you? What what does that what did that feel like experience? What what is that? I think if you've got it psychologically, it's reaching it, it's becoming aware of a self-understanding of this is what you want to do for uh, hopefully the rest of your life. It's a sense of vocation, uh, that this is something that I really like to do. These are people that I admire that have pointed the way to me, but this is a way of life that I would really want to enjoy. And I see it as my 
uh, response to God as saying, this is how you want me to live out my life. It's a fascinating journey from probation officer to clergy. The two are very different. Or is there a connection that I'm missing? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I think you find out a lot more as a priest than you did as a probation (laughs) officer. Um, I always say that uh, we never knew what went beyond. We did know what went on behind closed doors. We get to know a little more. Um, If anything, being a probation officer for those many years, 14 years, opens you up to a um, really rock-solid understanding of human nature mm-hmm. and a perception in that. And if there's a connection between that and ordained ministry, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, understanding a broad range of society. Um, what does but that I do have to admit, after going into seminary and was told by a professor, you have to get a more positive outlook because <laughs> <laughs> you become rather jaded. Wait, well, that's what I was going to ask. What does that mean? What, what is that learning of human nature that you got as a probation officer and that you got as a member of clergy. What is it to be human or, or what are people as far as you know? I think a large part of it for me has always been that we're, we're equal on this earth. And uh, there before the grace of God could, could, go, uh, could go myself very easily. Right. I think what's helped me a lot quite personally, and it's, it's no great secret, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And I was an al- active alcoholic for 22 years. And I did a lot of work with, with uh, drug addicts and, and, and so on and so forth in probation. And just gaining an appreciation for sometimes the suffering and the vulnerability of others. Mm. And what does that mean, I guess, as a member of clergy, we see a lot of suffering and vulnerability. What does that mean for you in, in terms of your role today? It, for me, for one thing, it means um, you learn to do a lot of listening and that we don't have all the answers and that um, people are going to need to develop their own, their own skills, their own insights uh, to succeed in life, but we can be there as a guiding, a guiding force. See, for me, it's interesting. The idea of a probation officer is someone who ensures the law is upheld. I'm getting a sense that's not where you are as clergy, not someone who says this is the law of God and it must be upheld this way. So there's quite a, a difference as well, particularly acknowledging that vulnerability of people. I, had a, I, I, w- I was fortunate enough to be involved in a probation department where we had a uh, really in, uh, intentional focus that we had two two clear responsibilities. One was to the offender uh, to make sure that, yeah, that they obeyed the law, that they did what they were supposed to do, and that the other was to the community, that we had a responsibility to the community, that we could, in our own ways, ensure that to the best of our abilities, we'll keep these people um, on the so-called straight and narrow. And it was a sense of community responsibility. And community is so important. It's clergy. And I do often wonder struggle with the loss of community today and, and, and how difficult it is to hold communities together. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are on that, you know, as, as, a, as a representative of one kind of community. I think, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I think we've become more divided and more isolated in our own communities. And we've stopped in a large degree uh, in so many circles, stopped listening to each other and stopped hearing each other's voices, stopped hearing each other's pains, each other's insight. This is um, one, of the, one of the biggest lessons I've had has been um, in my ministry, having been fortunate enough to be in Northern Ireland and doing some work in the peace and reconciliation programs over there, and being with people who have at one point in their lives been 
pointing guns at each other and, mm-hmm. and shooting at each other and have reached a point where they can work together for economic development and youth development and community development. Um, and I've often said, I said, boy, if, if those guys can do it, you know, we've got, a, we've got a big lesson to take from them. So that's been a big part. So it's learning. We all share this planet together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no one has a corner on the, on the truth. And we can all learn from each other. Our problem, two weeks ago when we had two guests in, we were talking about how part of our environmental difficulties are so bound up in economic difficulties, um, and or at least the economic system that we have. So when you say we all share this planet and we're all equal, in theory, that's correct. But in practice, that isn't correct. You know, some people are more equal than others, I guess, um, to quote elsewhere. What do we do with that? Or what do you do with that as a member of clergy trying to to say to the world, we're all equal with our, our learning, our insight and our pain. We're, we're all equal in that. And then seeing the world around us that is so unequal. I think there's two ways of, of approaching that. One is that um, we persist. <laughs> we're big right. on forbearance. I have a late friend of mine, a priest, who always kept a sign on the front of his car, Sisu, which in, I guess in Finnish means forbearance. And I asked him once, what does it mean? And he says, that's how we got rid of the communists. He said, we just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, and that, that's one way. And the other way is uh, essentially that we, um, that we need to learn from each other and we've got all uh, something to share. This is the beauty, especially here in Santa Fe that I found in my ministry with interfaith dialogue. Uh, you and I coming from different traditions and others coming from different traditions um, give witness. And I think that's as powerful a way as expressing and as talking that we give witness to a solidarity with each of the Interfaith Leadership Alliance, bringing mm-hmm. people in from a variety of backgrounds uh, and um, living that out. I've often, I've learned too in a variety of, of settings that I've had that there's an awful lot to say for the notion of presence of being present with one another, being present in, circum- in, in a number of uh, situations that um, all we can do is just sit there, um, hopefully uh, bring some change. I learned that as a hospital chaplain more than anything else. The, just, just the fact of our presence, not the things that we do, right. but the fact of being right. in a shared space. Exactly, exactly. We had uh, years ago at St. Bede's, Diana Eck, who is the chair or the director, I think she may still be, of the Harvard Center for Religious Pluralism. And she gave a talk that night, and what I've remembered from it is her simple statement. She said, you know, you and I can sit down and point out things to do from an interfaith perspective of helping the homeless and working for peace. And she said the challenge comes on those borderlines where we can't cross in terms of our belief but being in solidarity with one another. I think that's a key ingredient. You mentioned earlier about forbearance, and and I guess this connects in with social justice. I know you've been very involved in social justice for uh, many years, for over Mm, 50 years, in fact. So how do you connect your faith with social justice? Again, I go back to uh, my childhood. Um, I I can say that this, I don't know how it sounds on the radio, but my mother's milk was made up of God, church, Irish Republicanism and the Democratic Party, right. and they all they all intermixed. Um, social action in the Bible, Jesus teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew twenty five, doing this to the least of of, of my people, um, are things that became ingrained in me at a very early age. I can remember in um, going back probably to 
to grammar school when I first began hearing of Pope Leo XIII's uh, encyclical on rerum novarum and holding up the uh, power of the worker. Um, and nuns, uh, quite frankly, in fifth or sixth grade during the, the McCarthy era saying, if you're going to argue with communists, read Marx first. And they were asking us some deep and profound questions. So it was um, Jesus' commitment to the poor, Jesus' commitment to um, building up his kingdom, what I like to call the beloved community, uh, that took root in me at a very early age. Interesting. Well, let's take a pause here. And then when we come back, we're going to um, explore more about our interfaith um, Mm. roots and what that means. So you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich and my guest this evening, Father Richard Murphy, retired rector of St. Bede's and also assisting priest at Church of the Holy Faith. We'll be back after this break. Welcome back. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and uh, president of the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Uh, and I'm joined this evening by Father Richard Murphy, who is a retired rector of St. Bede's Episcopal Church, um, who's also currently the assisting priest at the Church of Holy Faith here in Santa Fe and also the uh, state senate chaplain. So in most faith traditions, there are obviously positive inspiring texts and you mentioned some before our break the sermon on the mount and so on but there are also these troublesome problematic Mm. texts which um which i I think we can't ignore and and liberal clergy tend to select these positive inspiring texts as sources for social justice and social action work and so on but what do we do with these more troublesome passages the embarrassing passages the ones that urge us to be parochial or violent or elitist, I guess. What do we do with these passages, at least the ones that are patronizing? What do we do to those that of these really difficult things that we can't expunge from our faith tradition? Where is God in that? Or, or where are our faith traditions in that? You know, I fall back on the uh, biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann, who has spoken on this a number of times. And he, he loves to refer to those parts as the naughty parts of scripture. And he said, perhaps when people come up to you on a Sunday and uh, ask you a question about something they just heard in Scripture, you just simply have to say, gee, I don't know. Let's look it up together. Um, A lot of those parts of Scripture um, that would that trouble that are troubling, um, especially uh, the violent aspects. I've always come to look on those parts, oftentimes as, let's say, in Hebrew Scripture. Israel's building, Israel's developing as a community um, and trying to follow God as faithfully as they could and then falling into um, exile. Uh, But at the same time, I have to realize that some of those parts don't reflect religious truth as much, and here I may sound a bit heretical, as they reflect more the theology and the philosophy of the author who is hearing those words through their own filter and writing them down. So in saying that, you're saying that there is a religious truth, a universal religious truth. In the wider context, there's a religious truth of people being shaped by God and um, sometimes being faithful to it, sometimes being unfaithful to it. And I think sometimes with in those situations, you can look um, – saying, well, somebody talked to me this just the last week about, this. I forget, Psalm 137, I think it's bashing the children's head against the stone as being abhorrent. And of course it is in our modern hearing. But I said, if you're in exile in Babylon and you were so mad at your enemy, the other, 
that you, you can understand not that, not that it's right, but you can understand where that emotion comes from. So I think it's, um, it's, it's part of the human yin and yang. So if, but if there is a religious truth, even if we may be struggling around it, is there any way for us to access that religious truth authentically? Or is it the search itself that is the best we can do? I think, I think the religious truth at the core of both, his, uh, let's say, Hebrew and Christian scripture is that the God that we express is a God of love and that there is a common denominator of God's love throughout history. And we can link on to that and hold on to that. It doesn't have to be an abstract thing. But again, going back to our notion of witness, our notion of dialogue, um, our notion of our common humanity and our common humanity with, with this earth, um, that we, at the core of that, um, are, are organized by a loving God. What does love mean there? Because there are so many different ways of understanding love, the love of parents, the love to children, the love of friends, erotic love. What kind of love are we talking about when you say God of love? I go back to the, the Greek expression agape, mm -hmm. that highest form of love um, that is one of so many loves, but it's that love of each other, that love of the other, and as we say, our love of the enemy, which is the most challenging part of it. But it's that higher love of higher love that God calls us to and that God witnesses to through us. How do, how do we love enemies? And in the sense that, can, can we just be asked to tolerate an enemy um, or to at least support an enemy? I'm, I'm thinking biblically from the Hebrew Bible, the idea of if you see, you know, the ass of your enemy fall and help the ass mm. up. Okay, that's different to loving an enemy. That's a really... That's a that's a difference in kind. Um, you know, if somebody is abusive to us, if somebody is violent, if somebody is our, our enemy for no reason of our own, why should I love them? Why can't I hate them and be angry at them, but at least do the right thing by them? I think if we're looking at just that one that one point of, you know, how do I love my enemy? I think you've got to unpack that and that there's, a, there's layers of engaging with the other, and you do it through through a process of love, but also through a process of justice, a process of fairness, uh, a process of, at some point, but not immediately, of forgiveness. Uh, Bishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu points mm -hmm. this out in his book, No Future Without Forgiveness. But I think we cannot automatically just look at our enemy and say, I love you, you're a wonderful person. Right. So on. So we have to confront What's the injustice in this in this relationship? Where's the um, inequality? And work work through that, and then come to that agreement. So, love of enemy is more intention, eventual intention, yes. than immediate response. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Thank you. So, look, let me ask um, you. Obviously, a state senate chaplain, you work with many different faith leaders at the Roundhouse. And, and I, I found myself, I've been in Santa Fe four years now, um, and I found myself really surprised at the presence of the religious voice in political dialogue. Um, and so, because in England, we don't have that strong mm. a voice, in, or religion doesn't have that strong a voice in the political dialogue. So I'm wondering, what, what do you think is the role of religion in a political setting? 
this is my this will be my fifth when the session comes up in January. I think it's my fifth session, and I've probably been asking that question for the past five years. <laughs> uh, the role of um, the chaplain, or the role of not so much the chaplain, but the prayers and the people who are present. Uh, saying those prayers before each session. Again, I go back to witness. Um, I can be very practical and say that I hope to have some impact on religious leaders. And I think... Um, on that, religious leaders or political um, leaders? Political leaders, right, I'm okay. sorry, political leaders. And um, you can't separate the two. We can go back to the Exodus with Moses. He would not have got out of, out of Egypt had he not confronted the Pharaoh, had mm -hmm. he not confronted mm -hmm. the powers. And that we are, um, we can't separate ourselves religiously from the work. We can't, I don't think we should impose our doctrines, mm -hmm. obviously, mm -hmm. but through um, what I would like to call a common spirituality right. um, that we share. And the beauty of uh, my experience at the Senate is bringing in so many people from so many different traditions and having them express to the senators. Um, their hopes from their faith tradition, including one Zen leader who just simply said one day, we don't pray, we breathe, and right. uh, led them through breathing exercises. Uh, but that we all have a, a common spirituality. I don't, not a doctrine, not doctrinally, but that we all have something to share and hopefully integrate with the process that's going on. So when you say your hope is to influence and i think mm. we all do i mean that's the, right. that's why we go and have conversations whether we're a member of clergy or whether we're an individual in the streets we believe this is my calling mm -hmm. and i hope that political leaders will follow that but then what do we do when we have one faith voice which is extremely liberal and one which is extremely conservative um trying to influence the same political leaders what, how do we move forward with that what's the ultimate Patience, patience. <laughs> patience, and hoping that um, one of one of the things, just that the, the mention a bit about my being an Episcopal priest. I think one of the things that, that drew me into Anglicanism was the fact that the core of uh, one of our, our core principles is a sense of the via media, the via me, the, the middle way. Right. That we invite people not for conversion, not for um, beating one's head with the Bible, but that we enter into a conversation with each other. Right. And perhaps within a Senate context, if that kind of a witness of um, coming together for common conversation, common dialogue, with those extreme views, mm -hmm. uh, frankly, there are some people that just may always want to remain outside, away from the table, and you just keep working, hoping that they will come in. Uh, I think if you look at any peace process around the world, there's always extremists right. that won't give up the violence and won't give up the gun. But uh, you just keep working and building it. So I guess that leads to, we've only got a few minutes left, but I guess that leads to the question about the the role or the purpose of interfaith dialogue, or at least what does it actually mean? You know, interfaith dialogue, I, I tend to see, seems to be liberal dialogue. Um, and we can plan and share um, events together, but actual dialogue tends to be uh, amongst liberals of faith traditions. What, what, is what does interfaith dialogue actually mean to you? As someone who's seen many differing forms of dialogue, you know, when we actually mm. get together, for example, at the Interfaith Leadership Alliance, what are we actually doing? 
I, I think at the Interfaith Leadership Alliance, we're bringing each other, we're, we're listening to each other on a number of levels, on social levels, on, on, on religious levels, and on levels of uh, recognition of common humanity. I think that, to me, is at the core of interfaith dialogue, is putting aside our doctrines and dogmas and realizing that you and I and others share a common humanity and are here to build up a common, a beloved community. I learn an awful lot at the uh, Senate because of the folks that I invite in. I'm, I'm sometimes astounded it's at um, how wonderful uh, people from diverse backgrounds can sit. I have a great little chat, as you know, with mm -hmm. everybody in the hallway before mm -hmm. we go into the session. And there's every, been everybody from extreme conservatives to extreme liberals. And we all have a conversation around the notion of community, the, uh, the notion of God. Right. There's not, I don't hear the absolutist talk. And I always uh, fall back on the Dalai Lama, who said in his book, um, Ethics for a New Millennium, begins mm -hmm. the book, quite frankly, in saying that, Wherever he goes in the world, whatever tradition he talks to, the common thread is a desire for health and happiness. And I think that um, this is reflected through the ILA. It's reflected through bringing a variety of people into the Senate or um, just working together in the community. What does happiness mean? If, we, if, if there is a common desire for health and happiness, what does that mean? I mean, what does it mean to be happy? Because so many people think that they're happy, but... Afterwards, realized this wasn't making me happy at all. So, so what is happiness and, and how do we get there? I remember when I first got sober, you're on what you call the, the, the pink cloud. And I just, I never knew that feeling of ethereal happiness, which eventually you get back down to the planet Earth. And uh, happiness for me is, is self-satisfaction in your own life through being with others. I love that notion in, uh, in the African notion of Ubuntu. I only know you, you, I only know myself through you, right. and we only know ourselves through community. I think real happiness is, and I don't mean the ethereal um, pink cloud kind, but the real nitty-gritty happiness is working, to, working with each other and just respecting and enjoying each other's company and each other's common humanity. The phrase I think you've used more than any other is common humanity. And so I guess that leads me to my final question, which is um, human beings tend to be very tribal. We tend mm. to be very much uh, connected with groups. Um, and and we are different. We're, we're similar in genetic makeup, although, you know, there are also differences there. Mm. Are, are we actually that common? Should, or or to, maybe to ask it another way. Should we be celebrating our commonness or should we be celebrating our difference? Both. So how, <laughs> how do we do that? Because if, if we all say, if we all sit down in a room together, and I, I guess this is interfaith leadership. When I started being a member of clergy, a rabbi mm. 14 years ago, um, interfaith dialogue tended to be much more, we're all the same. We all believe in God. And so it's all good. So we don't need to fight. And I, I find that misses all the differences and what makes us unique and what brings us our own personal histories and stories and, and, and so on. So, so how do we, you say both, how do yeah. we celebrate our, our shared, our, our, our humanity, our, our commonness, while also celebrating our diversity? How do we do that? I think we have to get rid of the niceness and right. the politeness and just be who we are with each other. Uh, it's, it's, um, you want to speak tribalism. I grew up Irish Catholic. And you're not going to get much more tribal than that, let me tell you. Um, in my neighborhood, I knew all the Irish and didn't know the Italians, and the Italians knew the Italians. But um, I think it is just seeing each other on, on very human on yeah very human levels. And 
we don't have to be nice with each other all the time. We can agree, we can disagree, and we can uh, go to each other's corners. You know, I think Desmond Tutu said in his book, No Future Without Forgiveness, reconciliation does not often mean relationship. Right. That there's a place where we just need to be apart. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been delightful. Um, thank you to Father Richard Murphy from Church of the Holy Faith. Um, really, your answers have been profound this evening, and I've really learned a lot from you. I, I do hope that you'll be able to come back another time. Oh, absolutely. Time. Thank absolutely. you. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>